Welcome to the Therapist Thrival Guide. My name is Miranda Barker. I'm a licensed clinical social worker. And with me is not Lucas Bellini, but in fact, Kelly Piper. Kelly, Hello. Kelly, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Kelly Piper. I am a, a clinician and the director of our Children's Services Department here at LA Mental Health. What's your license? LACSW. Okay. Yeah, clinical social worker. I forgot that you were also a clinical social worker. I am. It is... I feel like this crowd is usually dominated by LMFTs, and so happy to have a fellow clinical social worker here. Absolutely. <laughs> I, I, I love it. Awesome. And what clinic do you work out of? Um, I work primarily out of the Minneapolis Clinic in Northeast. Okay. Awesome. I still have never been to that clinic, actually. It's cool. I know. It's got a good vibe. I, like, I'm a Minneapolis gal, and so I, I can't believe I haven't been to... Yeah. To that clinic it's nice. Yet. Our assessment clinic is there too now. Yes. Yeah. Okay, wait. Do you want to just talk a little bit about that really briefly? Sure. So we used to do psychological evaluations out of our Minneapolis clinic, and now we have a much more tailored space. It is still in the Minneapolis clinic, but it has its own sort of space and suite set up that's much more evaluation friendly, much more quiet, much more controlled. Um, and then we do evaluations for kids and then some adult evaluations as well there now and kind of um, are expanding that program. What sort of evaluations? So when we talk about evaluations, we evaluate for things that therapists may not have the expertise to evaluate for, things like autism spectrum disorder, uh, ADHD, um, and then some of the trickier kind of differential things when mm -hmm. we're not sure exactly what's going on, but we feel like there's more to this picture and we need some testing to support our understanding of what might be most helpful. Yeah, awesome. And our guest today is Dr. Claire Garber. Do you want to introduce yourself a little bit? Yeah, I'm Claire Garber. I'm a child and adolescent psychiatrist. Um, I also work out of the Minneapolis Clinic. Oh, so, um, okay, yeah. wait a second. So yeah. when I when we came in here and I was like, do you two know each other? And you yep. both were like, yeah. yes, Miranda. <laughs> yes, we know each other. Oh, perfect. Okay, so wait, sorry, mm -hmm. keep going. Um, yeah, so I see... Yeah, kids kind of the whole spectrum into young adulthood and um, primarily do medication management and yeah. Awesome. How long have you been in this field? Uh, let's see. I've been out of my residency and fellowship for a, like four and a half years. So okay. I've been practicing, um, yeah, for about that long. Awesome. So, yeah. And have you been at Ellie that whole time? I've been at Ellie for about a year and a half. Okay. Nice. Yeah. Well, awesome. Yeah. So today we're talking about autism spectrum disorder, and I wanted to bring our medication management team and our like child therapist team together to talk a little bit about how, um, what the symptoms are, how to best treat this, all of this sort of thing. And so I'm um, excited to kind of dive in. Mm -hmm. I don't know who wants to start with what are general symptoms of autism spectrum disorder? And to caveat, we're talking mostly about kids today. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds good. That's good because that's what we do. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> I, I would be, I'd be a little shocked if they were like, "Let's talk about adults." I'm like, "I don't know, not my, not my area." Uh, yeah, symptoms with kids. I mean, autism spectrum is a spectrum, right? That's why we name it as such. It has a ton of different symptoms that can go along with it. It's really a cluster 
of symptoms that are kind of lumped um, under the same kind of umbrella. So when we have this cluster of symptoms, we understand it to be um, autism spectrum disorder. Um, there is a wide range of functioning, and I think that that is um, sometimes a common misperception among people is that it has to look like one thing or it has to be very severe. Um, we see incredibly uh, well-adjusted, um, really super functional kids um, doing just fine who qualify for the diagnosis. Um, but essentially, I think the kind of the main feature when I think about mm-hmm. um, autism is um, some sort of social deficit. So it really impacts our ability to perceive ourselves and other people in a way that is neurotypical. So um, there's a lot of, uh, I think neurodivergence is like a buzzword, um, but right now thinking about you know neurodivergence as being a difference in the way that your brain works. And so for ASD, um, the difference in the way the brain works has a lot to do with social um, things, social skills, social perception. There can also be a cluster of other symptoms that may or may not go with that. Sensory sensitivities and reactivities, sensory aversion, sensory seeking, meaning that we have to have a lot of sensory input in our body. Um, Some rigidity, so having to have the same kinds of routines, the same kinds of things. Um, Fixed interests where we get super intensely, passionately interested in one thing um, to the detriment of kind of some of those other social skills um, or kind of existing in in kind of the neurotypical world. Um, So there's a whole bunch of things that can really be sort of lumped under that we look at when we're looking at evaluating Mm -hmm. um, for autism spectrum disorder. Awesome. Do you have anything else to add with that? Kelly did a great job. Kelly, you're Mm -hmm. awesome. So I'm curious, what do you two love about working with this population and with kids that are on the autism spectrum? Yeah, I mean, I would say just kind of piggyback on, on on the idea of this spectrum, right? Like, they're all unique. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what you're working on with one specific kid is really individual. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, whether or not they have autism, like, you approach them as a unique person and figure out what their individual challenges are and, you know, come up with goals and mm-hmm. things together. And so I think... You know, it's important to kind of understand the child in that context, but mm-hmm. also, you know, really looking at it with their unique sort of challenges and strengths. And Yeah. So if I'm a new clinician and, and I just started working with a kiddo um, that I suspect is on the autism spectrum, what would be my next kind of course of action or step? Would it be additional testing? What What would it look like? I typically recommend testing. I think that's um, a good way to get a pretty thorough picture overall just of of kind of cognitive process and functioning. And I think the thing that we always think about with testing is a diagnosis of. And what I really like about testing is it helps you understand the way a kiddo's brain works. Mm -hmm. And so it isn't just about those areas of deficit. It's about the areas of strength and what we can capture to help kids function really well and get to know their strengths and advocate for their strengths um, while understanding that they may have some areas that are going to pose additional challenge for them. um, And we can help work with them around those challenge areas. Mm -hmm. Um, So I typically recommend um, an evaluation. 
with a clinician, a, a psychologist who's very familiar with diagnosing autism in kids, I think um, that tends to be the best way to kind of get started. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then what about after that? You've received an autism diagnosis. Um, what does treatment of symptoms or what does this look like for We'll start with the therapist side and then kind of moving into medication management. Yeah. So one thing that I really, really emphasize to families and to kids, because I think it's so important for kids to hear, is that autism doesn't mean that your brain is broken. It doesn't mean that there's something wrong with you. Um, I don't. I don't like the perspective of necessarily treating the autism. Mm -hmm. I like treating the symptoms that create distress around autism. Um, So, you know, sometimes kids get, um, can have anxiety or they can have depression because they don't understand why they're not making social relationships and they really Mm -hmm. want those social relationships or they don't understand um, or get very anxious when they can't um, do something the way that they expect because their brain is programmed Mm -hmm. that way. Um, And so it isn't about curing or treating the autism. We're not going to get rid of that. We're not going to change that about their brain. Mm -hmm. Um, But we are going to support them to use their strengths, to advocate for their strengths, um, and for their parents to advocate for their strengths um, while trying to support some of the the resulting kind of symptoms that might create that distress. Mm -hmm. Um, We aren't living in a particularly like neurodiverse friendly world like we like to have a very specific way of doing things and I think it's really easy for kids to develop the idea that their brain works wrong Mm. or that something is wrong with them Um, and so I I really really try to understand and come at it from this perspective with parents too like there is absolutely nothing wrong with the way that your child's brain works where there's deficit there's also incredible strength in some of that um, passionate restricted interest mm-hmm. or the um, you know the creativity in the way that they um, can sometimes just interpret different things in in different ways um, so it's really about kind of I think finding a good fit for therapy um, to support the strengths and some of those areas that are creating distress um, and therapists who can advocate to school. I think school is a big part of the picture um, in helping kids feel successful. Yeah. Yeah. So what, tell me about some of like your favorite interventions, like if a kiddo is struggling with social skills or, yeah, maybe we just start with that. Yeah. I mean, so I think the biggest thing for me is kind of like what Dr. Garber was saying is is finding out this unique individual, right? Because every kid is going to have a little bit different perception. Everybody's going to have um, a little bit different understanding of what's happening. Um, and so trying to find those distress points, um, like, okay, so you're having some social difficulty. Where is that? Um, sometimes when we have that anxiety, and this is true for kids on the spectrum and not on the spectrum, mm-hmm. but when we have that anxiety, sometimes our boundaries can get blurred. And so instead of, um, you know, approaching people in a way that feels good for them, we're in their face or Mm -hmm. we're in their space or we're touching them. Um, And so if that's an area that creates distress and anxiety, then we start kind of supporting kids to recognize and to realize, but also to explain why they're coming at the world differently. Um, Because I think a big part of it is helping kids find acceptance for themselves. Mm -hmm. um, And, 
helping other people accept that their brain works differently. So it doesn't mean that I have to be okay with a kid like climbing on top of me, right? I get to have my boundaries and my body boundaries, um, but helping kids be able to say, this is the way that like I, I interact with people at first when I get anxious mm-hmm. or when I don't know what to do. Um, and then helping people pause and kids pause and reset and then try again mm-hmm. um, and kind of navigate some of those social situations. So a lot of it depends on those distress points. Mm-hmm. Like how can we use your strengths, your s- desire for social connection, your your super smart brain that learns so well um, to really capitalize on those strengths and um decrease the distress around any given area that might be creating some difficulty. What are some other like distress, distressing points or some things that you might work on with a kiddo on the spectrum? Um, oh my gosh, there's so many. I just, it's so depends on, on things. And I think a lot of times it's not necessarily the child themselves. It's how, the neurotypical world oh, is yeah. relating to mm-hmm. the child, right? That's such a good point. Yeah. Um, and even parents, right? Like mm-hmm. we were raised in a certain way. We were raised with a certain lens. And so it oftentimes isn't the child <laughs> themselves that's responsible. It's the distress that's created because of a misalignment between mm-hmm. my strengths and the way my brain works and what you expect from me based on your experience and kind of your understanding of this. Um, so a lot of it can be sort of helping kids and families work out those stress points. Mm-hmm. Um, and so helping parents um, think about different ways to structure that's supportive to, to kids on the spectrum. Um, you know, creating those uh, routines that mm-hmm. feel good, the, the warnings. I mean, there's lots of like little things that we use. Um, but I think the ultimate thing is really creating that conversation mm-hmm. between kids and parents or um, parents and teachers or kids and teachers um, for this is the way my brain works. Mm-hmm. This is what I need. This is what's going to help me and trying to find those points that we can can offer them some accommodation, some support, and then um, kind of promote their functioning that way. If you are a therapist that's interested in like really specializing with this population, is there like a modality or some sort of specific style you would recommend or not necessarily? Not necessarily. I think there's um, there's been a lot of debate yeah. in the therapy world recently um, about certain modalities. Um, ABA is mm-hmm. one. So mm-hmm. if people are familiar with ABA, um, applied behavioral well, analysis. And I, this is the... This is new information for me. So like when I was in graduate school, I remember we would talk about, oh, ABA is best for autistic people. And then like the, you know, it's Autism Acceptance Month as we're recording this. And so even just in my own research and own conversations, learning about how a lot of people that are part of the autism community really, they disagree with that and make it, I don't know a lot about ABA, but. Um, that was new information for me. Yeah. I mean, ABA is very much a behavioral model. Um, and I think the the backlash to it makes a lot of sense. What is the backlash? Do you know? It's about instead of the world being okay with the way that my brain works, it's reliant on me to change me mm. to meet the world's demands, mm-hmm. to meet the world's sort of expectations of me instead of recognizing that I have my own brain that works my own way and that is okay. Um, and 
you as a part of you know my system have to work with me in that it is all reliant on the individual with autism changing the way that they interact with the world Mm -hmm. Um, and it can create a lot of distress Mm -hmm. Um, and some of the backlash around it has been that it creates some shame some guilt if we're not able to or we don't want to change um, to meet other people's expectations or to function in a way that would be quote unquote typical mm-hmm. um, that it, it does more sort of harm. Mm-hmm. And I I mean, I, I think in the crudest form, I've heard it described as dog training, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's the mm-hmm. it, this, some, this kind of way of doing it instead of really having a conversation about individual brain functioning, how your brain functions, what the distress points are, what the strengths are, how can we... Um, foster this real like Mm self-love and self-advocacy for what I need and how I greet the world Um, and I also think you know ABA we we do it with kids and we do it for compliance and we love compliance in kids right (laughs) and then as we get to be adults we like we laud people that think outside the box or do things different Mm -hmm. or you know you put that on resumes right Mm -hmm. like oh I'm a creative thinker who comes at problems from a variety of directions and in kids, we're like, no, 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 please don't do that. <laughs> Sit down and be quiet. Right, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's a shift in, in how, and I talk to parents a lot about how the adult world is very much more forgiving of neurodivergence. You pick careers, you pick mm-hmm. jobs, you pick experiences that meet your brain's needs. And we expect all kids to fall in line. And so the backlash of ABA is that I don't need to mm. fall in line. This is such a good segue into just the medication world then, too, because I like should we be medicating ch- like you know just all of all of this kind of lends to I, I think a similar debate and so I'm curious your thoughts Dr. Reber. Yeah um, yeah before we dive into meds the only thing I was going to add Kelly that was fabulous was just like you know the this relationship with school which you touched on a little bit but it's like you know we want our kids to fit in this box of school mm-hmm. and function well and and this is where I see a lot of my kids with autism really struggling Um, And so it's figuring out, like, how do you really, like, identify what the pain points are at school and Mm -hmm. really advocate for them and teaching parents to advocate for them um, because we – not every kid is going to fit that model. Mm -hmm. Um, And so from my perspective, that's – you know, we – I spend – a lot of my time it's talking so about that. Hard. How do we get school? Yeah, to better, I have I have an autistic teen that I see in therapy, and I mean they are struggling in school. It's the last you know month, six weeks of school, and they're struggling. And it's like, gosh, how can we be mm-hmm. better advocates? How can we? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's so tricky. Yeah, but then with meds, I mean, I think you know the approach is similar to some degree. Is that we, you know, we don't have meds for autism, mm-hmm. for example. You know, right. I mean, there's one one caveat to that, but yeah, I mean, we don't, you know, we don't medicate the social deficit challenges, the restrictive interests, you know, the mm-hmm. those kind of typical, you know, hallmark things of autism. Like we don't have meds for that, um, and so you know, obviously, a lot of psychoeducation about that, mm-hmm. but. What we do use meds for is identifying what are these like comorbidity challenges, right? Mm-hmm. What are the things that we see that go along with autism really commonly, like anxiety in childhood or ADHD? Um, and we can use meds to try to help, you know, those functioning mm-hmm. points so we can help support a kid to feel better and function better um, while they, you know, learn their, you know, ways to cope and do therapy and build their social skills and things like that. But, um, you know, really identifying and figuring out if there are these kind of Mm co-occurring disorders that need treatment. 
Yeah. So, so much of your initial role with families and with kids is probably just kind of taking a step back and, and saying, okay, you have this overarching diagnosis, mm-hmm. but what are these other mm-hmm. smaller pain points? Yep. What about like anger issues or yeah. other types of behavioral concerns? Yeah. So the one caveat to the med discussion is that we do have two medications that are indicated for um, a basically aggression or agitation mm. um, associated with autism. So in really severe cases where kids, you know, have difficulty controlling their behaviors and um, or have a lot of anger and irritability, um, we do use uh, met these two medications specifically um, called neuroleptics, atypical antipsychotic or neuroleptic medications. Um, and they ha- both have very good evidence um, basically for lowering kind of that degree mm-hmm. of agitation and aggression. Um, they both come with fairly significant side effects. So oh, really? it's always a, a discussion with families, like what are the pros and cons of using meds mm-hmm. and how do we weigh those risks and benefits? But usually to, by the time we're having that discussion, it's because behaviors are pretty significant. Mm-hmm. So, Oh, interesting. And mm-hmm. so, so oftentimes you're seeing kiddos that have um, like eight symptoms of ADHD, anxiety, anger, any other sorts of things that I feel like we're missing from a medication standpoint? Yeah, I mean, you can see the whole spectrum of mental health right, occurring <laughs> in people with autism. So, yeah, you know, my, you know, my, I do my assessment and my mm-hmm. differential kind of the same way I would for any kid with or without autism and make sure that we're screening for all those things, you know, any type of anxiety disorder, depression, mm-hmm. you know, even, you know, in rare cases, of course, like bipolar or things like that. But, um, you know, kind of making sure that we're checking all those boxes and looking for anything else. But mm-hmm. interesting. Mm-hmm. No, that's so helpful. So then how can therapists and prescribers work together? I mean, I know Ellie is nice because we have prescribers and therapists here, so we can just, like, reach out to one another or, you know, do internal referrals pretty easily. But, like, in general, how can – do you often talk to therapists that um, your clients are seeing? How does that look – what does that look like? Yeah, I mean, certainly, yeah, I mean, it's it's great to collaborate with a therapist, and mm-hmm. um, sometimes it's helpful to, you know, like if you're working with a kid for a while and you're wondering, like, oh, maybe, the, you know, I wonder if this kid has autism, and, you know, it hasn't been diagnosed, they haven't done testing, and it's been a little bit on my radar, you know, mm-hmm. so cases like that, I find it really helpful to reach out to the therapist and say, you know, what, do you feel like this mm-hmm. is, you know, maybe part of what's going on, or, um, you know, even you know, trying to identify those comorbid, you know, challenges. Like, are you seeing anxiety? Are they willing to talk Mm. about it, you know, in therapy and not maybe in med appointments, you know? So, I mean, collaboration is always good and helpful. And Yeah, I think think Dr. Garber's point about maybe families or kiddos being able to talk in therapy appointments – in a different way that they can talk to a med management provider. I mean, I think there's a little bit of like, like MD anxiety, right? Like I don't want to talk to my doctor about these things or I don't want to question this person that I hold in really Mm -hmm. high esteem. Um, But I'll do it to my therapist. (laughs) Um, And so then we can talk about that Mm -hmm. and say, you know, like they don't bite. They're, Mm -hmm. they're really, they're, they're interested in your experience. And so if you feel like something's off or not working right, Mm -hmm. or you feel like there might be a dosage issue, especially for kids who have been on the same medications for a long period of time, or they're starting to go through puberty, um, or other things that may impact 
kind of dosage and, and medication, mm-hmm. things like that, encouraging parents to advocate for, to talk to their medication mm-hmm. management providers. Um, I think the other thing that I really have appreciated is understanding for myself some of the side effects mm-hmm. um, and some of the difficulties. There are certain drugs that we don't want to um you know, all of a sudden stop taking. And so it's been really helpful to collaborate with med management around, especially with some of my teens or my pre-adolescents who can have these periods that they go through where they really resist taking Mm -hmm. medications because they don't want to be different. They don't want, they kind of have this, like, I want my brain to to function and and it does. Um, It's just that it can help them be less distressed. Mm -hmm. And so I think um, there can be this rejection period that kids go through. But being able to kind of lean into medication management providers and say, like, what is the risk here? Or Mm -hmm. what should I be talking to my clients about? Because I understand that maybe they're not med compliant right Mm now. Um, Our mom is having some concerns about that. Um, So being able to say, you know, this is really not a great idea Mm -hmm. for this reason or that reason um, in a way through an established relationship mm-hmm. um, where you're meeting weekly or bi-weekly. Well, exactly. I mean, we're seeing clients usually more often. And yes. so that that makes a lot of sense, too. Um, okay. For my own selfish reasons, I want to I go back to the school point and, say, and ask, like, how can therapists and providers really be at the table and helping to advocate for kids in schools that are maybe public schools, underfunded, don't have the resources to really help – with um with their students with autism yeah i don't know does anybody have an answer to that (laughs) (laughs) anybody anybody Uh, uh, it's very difficult because Mm -hmm. i think it takes resources Mm -hmm. it takes time it takes staff who are well trained and have a a good understanding of of kids and to be clear it takes a release of information too (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, keep going. Make sure you get that. Um, So I think it it can be really difficult. And and I understand the resistance, too. When I reach out to a teacher, I talk to a teacher, and it's like, yeah, you don't have 31 kids in your therapy session. You're right, I don't. I don't have 31 kids in my therapy session. And I can't imagine trying to to do that. (laughs) That It's just that there's a reason why I have one. Um, I think it... Again, it's the relationship, right? It's the relationship that you foster with the school, mm-hmm. with the provider, with the parents, with the kid um, that you can use and starting with the understanding of, of what this looks like mm-hmm. from a school perspective um, and advocating for um, those things. Mm-hmm. I think I have seen more willingness, I think, recently from school staff to think about it differently mm-hmm. instead of in terms of compliance and and that kind of thing and be able to think about individual brain functioning and needs and strengths mm-hmm. and things like that. Um, but it it's a challenge because mm-hmm. you, you don't have the resources oftentimes um, to meet this kid's needs. And it's not that the teachers don't want to. They would right. love to. They'd love to be giving this this child additional supports in mm-hmm. whatever way they can. But it comes down to qualifications and funding and a whole bunch of other things that we have no control over. Mm-hmm. That didn't answer the question. I don't have an answer <laughs> to the question. Well, and I was just going to say, too, like in my experience, um, it, I've had kids that I'm just thinking through like, 
most of my autistic clients are really struggling with school and so the idea of a therapist talking to my teacher is hard like that they get angry at that and I mean this is an overgeneralization just to my clients but like um because they don't want to lose that confidentiality and and they and they shouldn't but um I have been more successful in saying I want to hear from your teacher about where you're struggling and so that you and I can be like processing and working on this because or even just brainstorming ideas that might helpful be help more helpful but um yeah it's I think I try and go back to too like this isn't your problem like if your school's not meeting your need mm-hmm. that's not on you right so how can I help you yeah. Explain the way your brain works. Advocate for yourself. Use your parents. Use me. Use the resources you have. Because I think so many times kids feel like they're destined to fail because the system isn't set up for their success. Mm -hmm. Um, And so being able to kind of come alongside them and say, like, look, this isn't your problem. It's not your fault Mm -hmm. (laughs) that the systems are meeting your needs. I want to try and work with you to figure out how we can make it so that you can at the very least advocate for what you need Mm -hmm. um, and like kind of take some of that pressure off of them Mm -hmm. um, because I think oftentimes kids and families like parents too to a large degree um, feel like they are constantly responsible for somebody else's understanding Mm -hmm. and that is really hard and it gets really frustrating. I don't know if you have any thoughts on this just from like a medication management perspective. Yeah I mean you know just the same ideas, right? Like we can't fix this big system issue, mm-hmm. um, but really like how do you empower the individual and the family? And so I, you know, put a lot of emphasis on like, you know, being your own advocate or the mm-hmm. parents, you know, taking on that role and educating them about like how the education system works and what their rights are and how mm-hmm. do they escalate things if they feel like they need to. And, you know, um, offering what I can you know Mm -hmm. I mean I write a lot of letters I don't know if it helps but um (laughs) you know things like that but um you know making sure that they know that right it's not their fault Mm -hmm. and it is this big ugly system Mm -hmm. to fight but there are you know there are steps that they can take and Mm -hmm. things that they can do to continue to advocate for their child and um and also there's a lot of education choice in Minnesota too good and bad you know but knowing like maybe this school is not the best fit Mm -hmm. and um you know, sometimes you have to make that choice too, and and that's can be hard to do. But you know, I can I've seen that make a big difference too. Mm-hmm. So knowing that you know you aren't necessarily stuck, but sure, how do you you know kind of keep working on it? What sort of letters do you write? Um, just a lot of letters, just supporting like. I mean, obviously, like, an IEP would be Mm -hmm. ideal for a lot of these kids. Mm -hmm. Now, that doesn't always happen, but, you know, trying to get a 504 plan, which would be, you know, uh, encouraging accommodations for a medical need. And so I write a lot of letters supporting that. I write a lot of letters outlining outlining very specific accommodations that – so if a kid and I can come up together, come up with a list together in clinic about – here are the things that I feel like would be helpful. Mm-hmm. I will put that in a list with, you know, from your doctor, you know, mm-hmm. give that to your school and I hope this, that helps. Yeah. I mean, I I would imagine that the school would like having some recommendations. Maybe it's mixed. I don't know. That's. Yeah. I mean, it's mixed. Sometimes <laughs> it works great and you see changes yeah. and, um, you know, things work better and mm-hmm. sometimes it doesn't. So. No, that's great that you're able to do that. I mean, I think that probably helps a lot with families and feeling like they're not helpless and that they mm-hmm. have someone in their corner that can be 
recommending these things. Yep. Um, that's actually a perfect segue into how can families, how can we come alongside families and support families that have autistic kiddos? Educate, um, a lot of processing, a lot of, um, I think sometimes we forget that there's parents when there's an autism diagnosis and that they're going to have their own feelings and thoughts Mm. about that and what it means and the implications of that. Um, I always... I mean, I always recommend that if the the child is in therapy, the parent is as well, either individually or family Mm -hmm. um, to and family can be done without the child. So like you can process, you can talk about, you can um, talk with your kid's therapist about discipline practices, the way that they impact them, how your child's anxiety might be impacted by this, that or the other thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I always recommend that it's never a solo journey for the child that the child really feels like they have people coming alongside them that are learning with them Mm -hmm. Um, so the parents are learning too the parents are getting their own support Um, the parents are changing some of the practices at home Um, again it's not all the child's responsibility Mm -hmm. to conform to what we believe they should or should not do Um, but it's a lot of times about working with parents to understand how this particular child's brain is different. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's really interesting because I've had, I have some families who have multiple children who are on the spectrum mm-hmm. and they work so hard because they have to develop this understanding of, of this child's brain and this child's brain and this child's brain. And it isn't that there's a one size fits all or they can use one technique across mm-hmm. um, all of their children because they all have been diagnosed with autism but it's very it's very unique Mm -hmm. right and all of the challenges and all of the strengths are very unique Um, so I think just getting that support um, positive positive support Mm -hmm. and so there's a lot of like Facebook groups and a lot of other sorts of resources for parents but the one thing that I talk to parents about is if it feels supportive lovely if it feels like you're being taken for guilt, like mm. just like if you're not constantly feeling inadequate or you're feeling like your parenting practices are so bad because you're a part of this group that makes everybody feel this kind of guilt and shame, mm-hmm. like that's not that's not what we want for you um, because it is hard. And so we want um, that, that collaboration mm-hmm. and that support to feel uplifting and creative and you can try some things, um, but ultimately, too, I think just centering parents around the relationship. Like mm-hmm. your child's ASD, ADHD, anxiety, depression, bipolar, whatever diagnosis they have isn't isn't the thing. Your relationship with your child mm-hmm. is the thing. And sometimes those symptoms can get in the way of our relationship with our child. Um, and so how do we support that? Mm-hmm. Do you have any thoughts more about or any other thoughts about support? Yeah, I mean, I think Kelly said it all, you know, but it's, yeah. You're so eloquent. I know, yeah. But it's, yeah, it's changing the expectation, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, it's it's learning about your kid, getting to know them, and being able to kind of meet them where they're at. And Mm -hmm. often that is changing the parenting approach, right? Mm -hmm. Like what, you know, your best friend does for their quote unquote normal neurotypical kid Mm -hmm. is not going to work, you know, necessarily. Mm -hmm. And so being able to kind of accept that and get support around it and 
Do either of you have examples of times when you've worked with families to like change a routine or change something to kind of help support the kiddo? I mean, I guess the thing that just comes to my mind is like routine or discipline or something, but I'm curious if there's any other examples. I think, so a part of it sometimes comes down to um, what what feels best in, in their individual. And yeah. The hard part about this, right, for all of it is that what works this year may not work next year. And as your child gets older and has different kinds of, you know, hormones or like friendship challenges or just a very typical developmental struggle, like this is going to look different. Mm -hmm. Um, And so sometimes that can be sort of tricky. But I think um, what I try and do is help parents understand behavior is communication, right? Not behavior is opposition, not behavior as being some sort of outcry against my parents and their authority and disrespect, but my behavior is a communication tool. And often it's a communication tool of distress. Mm-hmm. Um, and so my behavior is indicating distress in some kind of way. And what way is that? And then how do we change that? Mm-hmm. Um, so if we're seeing you know, big tantrums around something, where's the distress? Like, is it the anxiety of having to shift from something that um, I wasn't done doing, right? Um, Or is it having to do with the unpredictability of things? And like, I just really, with an anxiety brain, like to have things a certain way. Um, If we can understand where those behaviors are coming from, or what they're communicating, we're going to be more able to intervene today, but also three, four, five years down the road when the underlying kind of distress is different. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that also serves the relationship because I can connect with you as my child if I'm understanding your struggle. And I'm not saying, oh, you're just trying to be disrespectful. You're just trying to be oppositional. I'm connecting with the anxiety, the feeling, the underlying emotion. Um I think it's really tough for kids because parents or for parents because they want to fix, right? Mm-hmm. They don't want to see their kids in distress. They right. don't want to see um, their kids having challenges at school or feeling like a failure or not succeeding socially. Um, so in anxiety, they try and do almost too much. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, just slow down. Mm-hmm. Like, let's understand what's happening here first. No, I appreciate that. That's that's really powerful. So I could give you an example of a case that I've had that <laughs> – that follows along that I love line. it. I love examples. Yeah. yeah this is so great. this was a middle school kid that I've been working with for a couple years. And, you know, through COVID, they were home. And then all of a sudden, there was this expectation to go back to school. Mm-hmm. And um, they did not want to go back to school. And so then every day, it was huge tantrums, you know, tons of anxiety, you know, what what appeared to be depression, you know, suicide threats, mm-hmm. you know, the home was miserable for parents, home was miserable for the kid, you know, we're meanwhile, like, trying all sorts of medications, like, can we treat this anxiety, you mm-hmm. know, this school avoidance, this anxiety piece, you know, fighting, 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 things are not getting better. And eventually, and it took, you know, kind of acceptance on my part and acceptance on the parents part, like, maybe going to school, not, you know, not going to school is okay. Like maybe mm-hmm. you shift mm-hmm. and you do homeschooling and you change the expectation, right? And you change, you know, maybe what you, the idea in your mind of what was normal and expected for them to achieve. 
And all of a sudden, as we've made that shift, the kid is doing tons better mm-hmm. and they're not anxious mm-hmm. and they're off meds now mm-hmm. and home is a happier place for parents mm-hmm. it's a happier place for the kid and so it's like it just took us both you know for myself too like making that mm-hmm. mind shift about like what is expected what mm-hmm. is normal and what the kid was capable of doing mm-hmm. right now and so it I think you know for me to be able to step back too is just as important as the parents but it's what made the difference. That's a great example of just, you know, breaking down some of the expectations that we hold and and even just questioning those. Like, why do we mm-hmm. why do we hold these expectations or why? I mean, not to say that, like, expecting your child to go to school is a bad thing. But at the same right. time, it is like and a, for most kids, that is good yep. and normal expectation. Mm-hmm. And and that's something I advocate for. You know, I don't <laughs> want a anxious kids, yep. you know, being able to skip school because that doesn't work either. Mm-hmm. But, you know, for this kid with autism, it was a different story. And so yeah. it was important to be able to make sure that part of the puzzle was, you know, front and center in my mind, not just treating it like anxiety in school avoidance mm-hmm. or opposition or, yeah. you know, a kid that just was, you know, having tantrums and being a problem for their parents because mm-hmm. that's not what it was. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, it's behavior is communication, right? Mm-hmm. So, and I think there's this, I don't know why adults do this, but they're like, I always feel like somehow kids' behaviors are out to get them. Oh, yeah. Yes. Like there's like personal <laughs> attacks. Um, and so I think I see that with schools too, where it, I, I had a, a kiddo who, um, was struggling in school and um the idea was well can they go to the the resource office mm-hmm. or the the counselor's office and it's like great but that's just reinforcing that they don't want to be in, in mm. class and i'm like yeah but it's also reinforcing that they know how to control anxiety right that they mm-hmm. can excuse themselves mm-hmm. and leave class and recognize that they're having an anxious moment and and that kind of thing i mean and how often do we need to teach adults to take breaks <laughs> And I like I've talked to parents about that too, which uh-huh. is just be like we're allowing our children to do something that we mm-hmm. very naturally do, mm-hmm. um, which is this is too much for me. I need to separate. And as an adult, mm-hmm. the world gives you that freedom and gives you that space to do it mm-hmm. most often. And for kids, it's seen as some sort of slight against humanity, mm-hmm. right? Like, oh no, you mustn't. <laughs> yeah. um, and this is a kiddo who is able to work back into being in the classroom almost full time. That's amazing. Um, but because we understood it and we mm-hmm. didn't see it as being a personal attack or threatening to the, they're doing just fine. Mm-hmm. Um, we're able to work. And I also think it says to the kids, too, that people are willing to work with me. Like, mm-hmm. they're willing to see this um, and to feel it's valid and my struggle is real. Um, I see so many kids across the diagnostic spectrum that just are trying so hard to have adults take them seriously and believe that their struggles are legitimate. Um, And so I think just anything we can do to help kids feel that Mm -hmm. is helpful. This has been so good. Mm -hmm. Thank you both so much for joining. Do you feel like we're missing anything before we, any other last tips or thoughts you want to join, you want to share? The meaning of life. I think I think we're in a kind of a crossroads in in understanding particularly some of these developmental neurodevelopmental neurotypicality kind of areas mm-hmm. um and starting to kind of reject it as being a, a personal problem and starting to accept it more as individual 
diversity in the way that we think about things and the way that our brain works. And I'm hopeful that a lot of the systems will eventually, and we know that systems take time to change, Mm -hmm. but I think I've seen more willingness to be open to that idea. And so I'm really hopeful that we, as therapists and as, you know, treating professionals can support our families and our kids in that way too. And challenge ourselves like Dr. Garber said to think differently about mm-hmm. situations and not think about this as a deficit mm-hmm. um, and I've even started writing that in assessments right is I'm not treating the ASD I'm not treating the ADHD I'm treating the underlying anxiety mm-hmm. that those things cause but this is not something to be treated this is a this is the way your brain works mm-hmm. um, and so taking a different perspective shift you both are so amazing I just <laughs> love learning from you this is great Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining. And thank you. We'll see you next week. All right. Thank you. The Therapist Thrival Guide is one of many creative productions from Ellie Mental Health. Ellie is an outpatient mental health clinic that began in St. Paul, Minnesota, and has continued to expand to over 20 clinics in Minnesota and a growing number of franchisees across the country. We'll be opening over 500 locations in communities nationwide in the near future.